This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. This is part two of my three-part interview with Rachel. If you haven't already listened to part one, then I recommend listening to that before going ahead with the next episode. In this episode, Rachel picks up where she left off to talk about how she found her final intended parents, Marion and David, and their journey to creating baby Hugo. This episode will be uh, quite emotional for most people. Um, Unfortunately, during the pregnancy, Rachel, Marion and David discovered that Hugo had a genetic condition that had not been diagnosed at the embryo creation stage and Hugo passed away shortly after birth. I'm going to hand back to Rachel, but I wanted to express my gratitude to her for sharing this story and uh, prepare yourselves. I would suggest bringing a box of tissues while you listen to this episode. And I was getting a bit disheartened because, again, I had met a few intended parents and I just never had that initial um, sort of connection with any of them. Um, I really wanted someone in Queensland because I didn't want to have to do the whole interstate thing again. And just on one of the chat boards one day, I on the surrogate chat boards, I said, oh, you know, I'm really having a hard time finding intended parents. I'm open to any recommendations. And there was a surrogate in South Australia that said, I, I know this amazing, amazing couple. You have to meet them. Let me start a chat on Messenger. And I was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I was like, hold up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> Don't tell me they're in South Australia because it's not happening. And she's like, yeah, they're in South Australia, but you'll love them. Just, just chat to them. Even if you don't connect, you'll, you'll make some really good friends. So she started this chat with Marion and we chatted for about three days without actually even bringing up surrogacy. We chatted about everything else except surrogacy, everything from Pokemon to art to movies and no mention at all of babies. So, um, I kind of knew within the first sort of two days that I was going to love them. Uh, I guess I had no idea how much I would end up loving them over the years, but um, we had that initial connection and it was about four months later that we met in person and we met at um, one of the um, Families Through Surrogacy conferences. So it was in Sydney. So they flew to Sydney and I flew to Sydney from Queensland and that was the first time that we'd actually met in person and I still hadn't offered to be their surrogate at that. I was waiting to meet them face-to-face before I made a final decision. And um, by the end of the conference, I knew without a doubt that they were a couple that I would go move heaven and earth to have a baby for, essentially, and go against all my rules about interstate surrogacy and uh, be their surrogate. So, um, so yeah, offered to be their surrogate. And by then, I was a qualified midwife. Um, so that's sort of the time frame that we're looking for. And through all that I had, um, and through all those surrogacies and egg donations, I had, um, you know, become quite heavily involved in the community, running forums and, um, and um, doing a lot of advocacy work for Surrogacy Australia, for families through surrogacy. I kind of left the egg donation forums behind. Um, so... Um, Marion sort of came on board at that point as well. She kind of got dragged in by proxy to be doing a bit of volunteer work, so which was nice because we, we had so much common ground outside of surrogacy, so having someone to do that work with um, that um, we also had common ground with surrogacy was great. 
Um, the first, so we finally decided to cycle. Um, the first cycle didn't take, unfortunately. Um, luckily, Marion was thir- no, 29 when she had her egg pickup, so she was young and fertile and had great eggs and they had a lot of embryos in storage and all the embryos had been PGS tested, which we were told tested for a huge range of, um, gene- a range of genetic conditions. This was, this was the marketing at the time for the PGS testing a wide range of genetic conditions to ensure that you're transferring a genetically sound embryo. So it had the PGS testing and then second cycle took, which was um, fantastic, was also happy. And probably about eight weeks along, I started just sort of getting a funny feeling that something wasn't right. I didn't, but I, I thought it was all in my head. I it was my first pregnancy that I had had as, while I was a midwife. So I thought that, you know, ignorance is definitely bliss. When you're working in maternity, working with um, a huge range of medical conditions and you see so much of what can go wrong in a pregnancy, I thought that I was just being paranoid when I was having reservations about how I was feeling about the pregnancy and what was going on. And because it was, um, so Hugo resulted from this pregnancy, because it was, Hugo was my seventh baby, I was sort of expecting to feel him kicking early on in the pregnancy and I wasn't really feeling him move. And by 20 weeks, I, I had quite a lot of anxiety around the pregnancy, even though all the scans were normal. We had the reassurance that it had been PGS tested. He had been PGS tested. Um, and, you know, I had, I had no reason for the anxiety. It was just a feeling I had in the back of my mind that something wasn't right. Um, and I put down, I put the, his lack of movements down to having an anterior placenta because I had an anterior placenta with the twins and I didn't feel them move until I was about 19 weeks pregnant. And, you know, 20 weeks came and went, still wasn't really feeling him move. 24 weeks came and went and I... Still wasn't feeling a move, but I was being reassured, you know, the placenta's anterior. This is probably why you're not feeling a move. And I could, I could palpate him. I could feel where he was. And I had, obviously, I'm a midwife. I have a Doppler. I was listening to his heartbeat. Everything was fine. Then at 28 weeks, we were diagnosed with a condition called polyhydramnios. And, and that is where you have too much amniotic fluid. Um, in in utero and at the time they were just saying you know it's probably idiopathic there's probably no cause for it I'd had it in my pregnancy with my third daughter um, but it it was quite what you know it wasn't severe at all Um, it was quite minimal amount of extra amniotic fluid but this time there was actually quite a quite a marked amount of increase in amniotic fluid and they didn't know why because, every, you know, everything looked perfect um, on ultrasound. He, you know, they, they mentioned a few conditions, one being esophageal atresia where they don't have um, the esophagus isn't joined and they don't swallow. So they talked talk to us about having a pediatrician at the birth and, but, you know, lots of reassurances that everything was okay. Um, by 30 weeks, I was really struggling with the pregnancy I was absolutely massive. I looked about 
that I was about term already because of the amount of amniotic fluid was, that was in there. And by this stage, I had put down the lack of feeling him move to the extra amniotic fluid because that's quite common when you've got a lot of amniotic fluid. And when I'm talking about how much amniotic fluid there is, when you're pregnant, you've got about a litre of fluid surrounding the baby. And I had about, they were estimating four to five litres at this stage. So, um, so, you know, I was quite big. I was, it was causing breathing problems because of the amount of weight that was being put onto my chest. And um, I went into the hospital one day just because I, you know, having massive amount of breathing problems and they decided then to do what they call an amnio reduction, which is um, essentially where they put a syringe into your, through your uterus into the, into the amniotic sac and they drain out some of the fluid. So the first amnio drainage happened at 30, 32 weeks. Um, all went by without a hitch. Um, I felt a lot better after I'd had it. And, um, you know, and they were reassuring us that, you know, quite often polyhydramnios will go away on its own. Sometimes it doesn't. The baby's just producing too much. Um, but they talked about how when you've got polyhydramnios, quite often it's because the baby is not swallowing it because it quite often gets swallowed by the baby and gets processed by its kidneys and get, then goes out into the maternal bloodstream. Um, or that he, he's, he was just producing too much. Um, at 34 weeks, once again, I had grown so much more. Um, at this stage, I probably had about six litres in there. Um, so they made a decision to do another amnio drainage. Um, at that drainage, they ended up draining four litres. At this particular, four litres of fluid was removed from my uterus. Um, and at this stage, they were starting to wonder why I had that much amniotic fluid. And I distinctly remember sitting, sitting there with Marion and David beside me at this particular amnio drainage, and the actual doctor wasn't in the room. We had the midwife and we had the ultrasound tech. They always do an ultrasound before they do a drainage. And she did the ultrasound. She's like, you know, is the baby moving much? I'm like, oh, well, I don't really feel it because of how much amniotic fluid's in there. She's like, oh, okay, all right, well, I'll just go get the doctor. So she left the room, came back. You know, we have, we're completely none the wiser. And the doctor says to us, oh, well, you know, he literally just walked in the room and he goes, oh, well, you know, the baby's really not moving much. Um, so quite, quite you know, it's quite possible that maybe the baby's got a form of muscular dystrophy, um, in which case if we do this drainage and Rachel goes into labour, because that's the side effect of, that a, a, can be a consequence of an amnio drainage is preterm labour. He said, you know, if we do this drainage, she goes into labour and the baby's born and it's not breathing, then it's up to Rachel whether or not we resuscitate. And they were saying that to Marion and David and we were just thrown completely thrown you know this guy just walked in and said i'm probably if i go into labor the baby's probably going to die because it probably has muscular dystrophy and we kind of just all looked at each other and we're like what what the hell and anyway he did a bit more of a scanning they did the drainage and he's like oh you know everything actually looks all right come back in a week and we'll do another ultrasound so we went about the pregnancy 
Um, I, I was obviously feeling a lot lighter at that stage. Um, felt, but I started to worry a little bit more at that probably because I'd had four litres of amniotic fluid drained and I thought I should be feeling him move. And I still wasn't really feeling him move. I could feel him in different places from time to time. So I knew he was moving around, but I wasn't feeling any kicks or any punches, nothing like that. Um, but again, I just put it down to me being a little bit more paranoid and I didn't voice any of those concerns with Marion and David because they had just been so amazing, you know, like with these complications, they had dropped everything to fly to Queensland to be there for all the extra appointments that we ended up needing. Um, you know, I was never put out at all, um, at all through the pregnancy because they always just seemed to instinctively know what I needed throughout the pregnancy. Um, we certainly had grown a lot closer during that time. Marin and I would text each other more than I would text my husband or she would text her husband um, to the point that where we called each other wife. So she's my wifey and I'm her wifey. Um, so I really didn't want to unnecessarily concern them, but we were still had, we both still had in the back of our minds what the doctor had said to us because it just seemed to come out of the blue and um you know we ended up nicknaming him dr death because he essentially walked into the room and said your baby's probably going to die and if it does then it's up to rachel whether or not we resuscitate and then he changed his mind and said that everything's actually looking okay anyway so after that drainage we made it, an appointment was made just for a follow-up ultrasound the next week and I said to Marion David, don't bother coming because we'd seen each other then every week for the last three weeks because of the extra scans and the drainages. And I didn't want them to have to fly to Queensland just for a routine ultrasound. Um, so I went to this ultrasound on my own. It was the first one that I went to on my own. Um, my husband was at work. Um, and I was definitely nervous going into it, but I just kept talking myself out of the nerves saying I was just being paranoid. So I went in for the ultrasound and it happened to be the same ultrasound tech that had done the last ultrasound and had some concerns. And she said to me, um, so tell me about the movements now. And I said, he definitely moves, but I don't feel him kicking. And she said, do you think that's normal? And I said, well, it's normal for him. He just doesn't move. It's, it's normal for him. I, you know, it's, it's not normal for a normal baby that in my last pregnancies, but this is what he's always been like. And she said, okay, I think I need to go see the doctor. And she left the room and um, the doctor came in, not Dr. Death this time, another doctor. Um, and um, he said, do you mind if I scan you? And I was getting a bit nervous at this point. And he said, he said, tell me about the movements, tell me about the pregnancy. So I was going through it all with him. And he said, look, I want to tell you straight away that none of this is, none of what's happening is because of you. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> this, is, this is really bad news. But he said, what I'm about to tell you has got nothing to do with you. But we're very concerned that we think the baby's got a genetic condition. And I said, oh, what, what sort of genetic condition? And he said, uh, well, it's looking muscular. It, it could be neuromuscular or it could just be muscular. But 
that there's the things that we're looking aren't looking very promising. And the amniotic, the amniotic increase in amniotic fluid is probably caused because he doesn't have the musculature, musculature to swallow the amniotic fluid and process it. And I was like, okay. Um, and, he, and he said, well, and if that's the case, when he's born, he probably won't be able to breathe on his own. He probably won't have the lung capacity to breathe. So in that case, he's probably not going to survive um, being born. So, and I was like, oh, okay. And I said, so what exactly are you looking at? What, what's telling you this? And he said, well, his lungs are quite small. He's got very little muscle mass. There's quite a lot of fatty tissue there. He's definitely not moving. We can't see him moving. He's not taking any breaths, which babies usually do in utero when they're learning how to breathe. Um, he said, look, I don't know. We can't say for sure what type of genetic condition is, but we think it's, it's a type of muscular dystrophy. And I said, but we had PGD testing. They, they genetically tested the embryo. It's not possible. You know, he said, well, if it's not muscular dystrophy, then it could be another form because there's so many forms of them that we don't know. And it could even be a genetic condition that we've never even heard of. And... Um, and I was just a bit thrown because we were guaranteed that we had this genetically perfect embryo transferred. Um, so he said, look, why don't we make an appointment with the neonatal team the next week and we'll go from there. But I just think that we should be really guarded with our diagnosis. And I, and I was just completely shocked. I just didn't know what to say. And I was on my own, so... I was left in the room on my own for a little bit while they went and made appointments and made a few phone calls. And I just had no idea how to go about telling Marion and David this news. They were in the process of getting ready to pack up their car to come to Queensland to prepare for the, for the birth of their son. And they were leaving in two days. So that's how close we were to sort of getting towards the end. And um, I sort of just sat there in complete shock, not knowing what to do. So I text my husband and I said in the text, um, just had an ultrasound, the baby's probably not going to live. And he rang me, he said, I'm coming home, I'll meet you at home. Do you want me to meet you at the hospital? And I said, no, just meet me at home because, we, you know, even if I can't drive, we've got to get the car home somehow. Anyway, so the doctor came back and he said, we've made these few appointments for you. Um, why don't you come out and we'll bring in your midwife and she can have a chat to you. So I was taken into another little room and um, I thought, I've just got to do it. I've, I've just got to tell Marion and David. And we were never ones for making phone calls and it's not something I would have been able to say over the phone anyway. So um, we'd had a group chat going on but while I was waiting for the ultrasound so I opened up the chat and I said it's definitely not looking good um, the doctor does think there's something wrong with the baby and he's probably not going to survive and it obviously what do you say to that you know um, it was just everyone was shocked um, uh, and the first response that Marion came back with was wow, I'm just so sorry that you had to go through that on your own, finding that out on your own.
which, you know, <laughs> when their first concern is for me is, is uh, sort of a testament to the type of people they are because, you know, finding that news out is never easy, but then finding it out on your own and then having another party involved is extremely difficult. So, um, you know, David was at work at the time. Um, Marion was at home alone. So they sort of, you know, they met up and, and we didn't really talk at all for the next sort of hour because I was going through the process of making appointments and then having to go home and, and they were, um, um, you know, still trying to sort through everything that had, they had been told. So it's kind of surreal getting told that news when you're nearly 36 weeks pregnant that the baby that you're carrying is not going to live. Um, it's, you know, and they essentially they, they told us and then that's it. Then they send you home and it's like, well, what now? You know, we still don't, we don't have any answers. You know, we have no answers about why this is happening, but we've just been sent home and we're expected just to go through with the rest of the pregnancy and pretend that, I don't know, what that nothing's wrong or are we preparing for a funeral? Like, you know, it was, there was just so much up in the air at that point and you just don't know what to think and it's, it hardly feels real knowing that you're carrying a baby that's alive and that when it's born, it's not going to live anymore. So Marion and David drove up. I think it was a very cathartic drive for them. They did the drive from South Australia to Queensland over three days. And I think being in a confined space of a car was probably what they needed to talk about the hard things, about what to expect over the next couple of weeks and, and you know, about all the preparations that they had had to be taking a baby home that now wasn't going to happen. Um, I think that was probably extremely beneficial for them because how does anybody have that conversation? But because they were sort of forced into a long drive, they were able to have those conversations. And it was something that, that I wasn't involved with. Um, and it was, and I was extremely happy not to be involved in those conversations because even though I was going through it as well, it was still their baby and it was still all, all the decisions that went, were happening from then on were for them to make. Um, and, um, I wanted them to figure out how they were going to cope through this, this, the next phase and, and, you know, um, what was going to happen from then on, you know, with themselves and, and, and then we would, I knew we would then get together and talk about it. And it was completely unspoken between us that that's the way it was going to be. I mean, Simon and I obviously talked about a lot of things, um, about, uh, you know, same sort of, same sort of things, but, um, and then they spoke about what they wanted, were wanting to do, for, you know, for the next couple of weeks. And, then we got together and we obviously spoke about the plan from that, that time forward and how we'd spend our time and, um, you know, what, what we would do if the baby did live and that sort of thing because we still didn't know for sure that he wouldn't live. We were just told he probably wouldn't live. 
Um, our next appointment at the hospital was with a neonatal team. And so, you know, we'd been told he's probably not going to survive birth. So we just assumed that he would be born and then he would pass away. But then when we had this appointment with the neonatal team, they said, no, we're going to resuscitate. If he's not breathing at birth, we will resuscitate. So that sort of threw all our thinking and all our plans out the window because we were just sort of, you know, planning for a baby to be born, pass away, and then we get to spend time with him. But they, they were explaining, you know, well, we still don't know what his condition is. He could possibly be born not breathing, but then develop some stronger muscles to get him breathing. And that does happen sometimes. And some of these babies that are born with muscular dystrophies uh, have a really hard start, but then they get better and some of them have a hard start, get better, and then they deteriorate. So, you know, there was just so much, so many unknowns at that point. And I think at that time as well, Marion and David were searching for answers because they had been talked into this PGD testing, which we were told tested and ensured a good, a healthy baby. But, and now we were told that we had a, a baby that had a genetic condition. So they were looking for answers through their IVF clinic as well because they felt like they had been misled because when we looked into it, we found out there's a difference between PGS testing and PGD testing and that when you're doing PGD testing, it's actually looking for a specific genetic condition that one of the parents are known carriers for um, and you can't just do a blanket test for all genetic conditions and, and that's exactly how they market it. And, and at the time they were actually calling it PGD testing, not PGS testing, which is something that's changed in the last few years because people were being misled about what it actually entails and what, what, what the results are. And when I had gone home after that initial appointment and they said it's genetic and it's probably muscular dystrophy and I Googled, you know, what they test for in PGD testing, it said they do test for muscular dystrophy. So, you know, we were definitely misled uh, when it came to, came to that. Um, so, we had the, so we had the second appointment and it was, ended up being the second last appointment before he was born. And they had said, you know, we're going to resuscitate, be prepared for anything, essentially, is what they said. Uh, so that kind of threw all our plans out the window about what we were expecting surrounding the birth. I was hoping to have a VBAC, which is a vaginal birth after a cesarean, but it definitely threw the plans for a VBAC out the, out the window because of how much amniotic fluid I had. And... Um, they had decided that the next time I needed a drainage that they would just deliver the baby. So um, at 38 weeks, um, I was quite large again and having a lot of difficulties breathing again. It was extremely uncomfortable. This pregnancy just had put a massive toll on, on my body just because of how much my uterus had stretched because of the amniotic fluid. Um, so it was decided at 38 weeks that we, he would be delivered by cesarean section. Um, so we went in at preparing for the worst. We, um, you know, we, we were prepared that he wouldn't actually survive at all. Um, 
but we were hoping that he, he would. Obviously, you go in with some hope still, even when you're told to expect the worst. So um, the hospital was extremely accommodating on the day. Um, they allowed, after a little bit of negotiating, allowed um, my husband, Marion, David, and our photographer in the room for the cesarean. And um, I was so relieved that we decided to keep the photographer because she captured so many beautiful moments and moments that you don't even realise that you have until you've got those photos to look back, which makes, makes a huge difference when, you know, the baby does, you don't have a baby to take home at the end of the day. Um, so we're extremely grateful to have our photographer that caught all those moments. When Hugo was born, um, he was delivered. Usually when you have a cesarean, the baby's lifted up over the drape, everyone looks at it, everyone goos and gars, and then they take, you know, then they dry the baby off and bring it over to you. But this time uh, I didn't even know he had been born. The theatre was completely silent. There was no baby crying. Um, they didn't lift him up. They said he's born, but we need to take him straight away. So they took him straight away into the resuscitation room. And all I heard for the next 10 minutes was beeping and lots of people walking around and no one was really saying anything. Um, at this point, they had Marion and David out of the theatre and they put them into one of the waiting rooms because of just you know how many people were in the theatre. So it was just me and Simon. Um, so essentially for the next 10, 15 minutes, we hadn't heard anything. Um, and I remember turning to my husband and I said, I can still hear the resuscitation going on. This can't be good. And um, after, after about 20 minutes, my midwife came in, who happened to also be a colleague, and she said it, it, would, it took a lot to resuscitate him. It took them 10 minutes to actually get him intubated. And to get oxygen into him, it was a full resus with chest compressions. He had three rounds of adrenaline. And it was kind of at that point that I thought, well, there's no hope. You know, you, you need that much of resus at birth. Then, you know, he's essentially got no lungs to, to breathe if it took him that long to be resuscitated. Um, so he was fully intubated and put on... To ventilation and um, the neonatal team went and got Marion and David and they said do you want to come meet your son so they took him in and they, and they met Hugo um, and then they Marion and David went with Hugo to the intensive care and I mean Marion was just over the moon the entire time which um, is a testament again to the type of person she is she was just living in the moment of being a mum finally, you know. Even if what, no matter what had come from that moment on, it didn't matter to her because she was a mum and this was her son. So she was smiling continuously. She would talk to Hugo all the time. Um, she relished everything that she got to do for him um, in, when it came to his cares. Um, and when they came and got her and said, do you want to meet your son? That's, that was her moment, you know, where all everything was worth it at that point when the doctor said, you have a son, do you want to come meet him? So, um, and when they transferred him in the elevator up to the intensive care, the doctor just said to her, you have a very sick little boy. 
but we're going to do what we can for him. And the next couple of days were just um, a bit of a blur of what was, what was, you know, they were trying to get to the bottom of what was happening with Hugo. Marion and David just were phenomenal when it came to being there for, for Hugo, even though he couldn't move, essentially. Um, he could only blink his eyes and he could move his little finger and that was about as much movement as he had. Um, but they would read him stories, they would sing to him, they'd play him music. Uh, he wasn't able to feed, obviously, because he couldn't suck, but um, they would chew feed him. Marion had induced lactation, so every bit of Marion's milk that she could give him, she did. Um, you know, they just contributed so much to his short little life, so um, which was just so incredibly heartwarming. And in the end, uh, after the Hugo's second day of life, um, that he was quite unwell um, to the point where they thought that he would pass away overnight. Um, he had developed pneumonia um, and it was quite obvious at that point that it wasn't a matter of if he was going to live, it was more a matter of when he's going to die. So we had sort of come to an unspoken decision that they were going to withdraw his life support. And having that meeting uh, where we talked about this with the neonatal team was probably the hardest part of the entire journey. When we had to sign the legal document that said that we were going to do that. It wasn't something that I ever wanted to put my name to, ending a life especially when it was never really my life, my little life to, to dictate what did and didn't happen to him. That as, as his legal parent, it was something that I had to do and I thought, well, if that's what I can do for him, then I'll do it. It was hard as it was. And while I was a complete mess, Marion and David were just so held together and they just handled it all so well and I was falling apart and I just felt like I was letting the team down which was ridiculous because it's a natural response for anyone to fall apart at that moment. But I just felt so, so much love for them because they cherished every moment with him. And it wasn't, it, of course it was filled with sadness, but they weren't focusing on that sadness. They weren't focusing on what was being taken away from them. They were focusing on what was given to them. And that was four days of Hugo's life, which was just amazing you know what parent can be so brave at that point just so that they get to have those moments with their child so we signed made the decision to withdraw his care and um i couldn't be there that day i i went into the hospital the day that they were going to remove his ventilation i had my first and last cuddle with him and then I went home because I didn't want to be there for that. I felt like it was something that they needed to do as a family because, you know, they were parents. They needed to be there for him at that time and it wasn't something that I had to be there for. So I went home and they sent me a text after he'd passed away. And that was Hugo's life. 
I wanted to say I haven't said much because I wanted you to be able to tell your story. I, I've okay. known your story for a while, but it's beautiful and tragic and incredibly sad. I mean, you know, here I am crying too. Um, <laughs> But you're amazing, Rachel, just being able to tell that story and, as you say, honouring Hugo's story and Marion and David. Mm-hmm. I think it's really lovely and I wanted to thank you for sharing that with me. That was the end of part two of my interview with Rachel. I do recommend that you listen to part three, which is also available on the podcast. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on my website, sarahjefford.com, or on Facebook or on Instagram, and feel free to leave feedback at Apple Podcasts.